You're listening to EHA Unplugged, Episode 8, Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia, CLL. Welcome back to the 8th episode of EHA Unplugged. This is the podcast where you can listen to passionate experts in hematology talking freely about highlights in their field of expertise. Today's podcast speaker is transplant expert, Professor Sean McCann. Well, Sean, the mic is yours. Hello, uh, my name is Sean McCann. I'm Emeritus Professor of Hematology and Academic Medicine at Trinity College in Dublin, in Ireland. And I'm making this podcast on behalf of the European Hematology Association. I'd like to talk to you for about 15 or 20 minutes on a subject dear to my heart, that is chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL for short. Now, I should say that until fairly recently, maybe 30 years ago, CLL was considered to be the Cinderella of hematologic malignancies. Uh, that means not too much attention was paid to it uh, by the majority of practicing hematologists. As we have known for some time, CLL is a chronic malignancy of B lymphocytes with a hugely variable survival from patient to patient. The giveaway marker is the presence of CD5, which actually is a T cell marker, which is aberrantly expressed on B cells in CLL. Now, to talk about the variation in survival, some patients never require treatment. Others have symptoms such as night sweats, weight loss, fever, extreme fatigue, and require treatment. And some have very aggressive disease, which may require many different types of treatment. And in a minority of patients, the disease will morph into an aggressive, diffuse large B-cell lymphoma which has a very poor outlook. And we'll say a little bit more about that in a few minutes. Now, because there has been such a wide variation in survival, there have been many attempts to develop a clinical prognostic evaluation, which will give the doctor and the patient some idea of what to expect over a period of time. There are two uh, major well-known clinical prognostic evaluations, and they are the so-called RAI, R-A-I, and BINET, B-I-N-E-T, and they are the two most popular. The BINET classification of CLL divides the patients into A, B, and C. A has less than three areas of palpable lymph nodes. B has more than three areas. And stage C has evidence of bone marrow failure with anemia and thrombocytopenia. Also, as in the case of rye and BNA, um, the lymphocyte count in the peripheral blood should be more than five grams per liter, and 30% of the marrow should be occupied by what we would call small lymphocytes. The rye classification goes from stage zero to stage four, Stage zero, stage zero is low risk, one and two, 
uh, is in large lymph nodes, which is intermediate risk. And three and four are high risk, again, with evidence of bone marrow failure. And the blood findings and the peripheral blood are the same as in the BNA classification. In spite of all of the more modern technologies, such as next generation sequencing and cytogenetic analysis, the clinical prognostic evaluation continues to be widely used. And it's probably um, safe to say that the Rye classification is most popular, certainly in North America. BNA may, may be more popular in Europe. Now, as I said at the beginning, many patients are asymptomatic. And because of the wide availability of blood counts in most hospital laboratories and even outside that, many patients are diagnosed with lymphocytosis in the peripheral blood is encountered at the time of a blood count for some other reason. Now, one of the complications, it's not very common, but can be troublesome to treat, is autoimmune hemolytic anemia. And I'll just say a couple of things about that. First of all, the presence of autoimmune hemolytic anemia, or AIHA as we call it, although troublesome, has no impact whatsoever on the prognosis of CLL. It should be treated like any other patient with AIHA with corticosteroids. It's important from the clinical point of view to remember that giving corticosteroids for AIHA will increase the peripheral blood lymphocytosis. And this is not an evidence of, or not evidence, I should say, of progressive disease. AIHA is found more commonly in patients with advancing disease. And as we'll see later, in patients with unmutated IVBH genes, AIHA is found more commonly. There has been a suggestion by some investigators, although not proven, that treatment with terambiacil or fludarabine may precipitate AIHA. There may be some suggestion that treatment with terambiacil or fludarabine may precipitate, may precipitate AIHA, but this has not ever been proven beyond reasonable doubt. AIHA may be so persistent that splenectomy or splenic irradiation may be required, although this is really uncommon. Um, vaccination against pneumococcus, haemophilus, and meningococcus, meningococcus should be given and lifelong penicillin prophylaxis if splenectomy is indicated. Uh, this rather, it's a bit of a conundrum because although, as we'll see, many patients with CLL have hypogammaglobulinemia, they may mount a response to vaccine. Um, Evans syndrome, that is the presence of autoimmune anemia and autoimmune thrombocytopenia may occur and again should be treated as AIHA with corticosteroids. Hypogammaglobulinemia, which is one of the common associations with CLL, tends to become more pronounced as disease progresses. My attitude is to give 
intravenous immunoglobulin prophylaxis in patients with recurrent bacterial respiratory infections. As we and others showed many, many years ago, T-cell abnormalities also exist in this B-cell disease, and this may contribute to patients' inability to mount a normal immune response. So giving intravenous or, as we'll see, subcutaneous IBIG can change the life of patients who have had recurrent severe bacterial infections. Now, the treatment of CLL has changed radically in the last uh, 10 years, shall we say. Until fairly recently, treatment was palliative and consisted of terambiacil and fludarabine. However, we now have immunotherapy, monoclonal antibodies, kinase inhibitors. So we're living in a very much in a changing field of therapy. Newer forms of treatment, the ones I've just mentioned, are facilitated or made more clear-cut by the development of cytogenetic and molecular analysis in patients with CLL and the concept of measurable residual disease, or MRD as it's known, and a new prognostic scoring system. MRD, which was originally called minimal residual disease, but is probably better known as measurable residual disease, is very useful in many hematological malignancies and can be applied to patients undergoing treatment for CLL. The concept of MRD depends on finding a specific profile on circulating malignant cells or cells in the bone marrow. Findings of less than one in 10,000 circulating cells, in the case of CLL, exhibiting the, the malignant profile suggests the patient is in complete remission from their disease and is a useful parameter for deciding whether further therapy is required or not. How do you measure MRD? Well, that can be by flow cytometry, PCR, or next generation sequencing. But I, in my experience, most clinical laboratories use multicolor flow fax analysis or flow cytometry. Using six markers, CD19, CD20, CD5, CD43, CD79B and CD81. As I said, this sort of analysis by flow cytometry can detect less than one in 10,000 cells after treatment. So when we're trying to make a diagnosis of CLL, surface CD5 expression, the mutational status of the IGHV genes, cytogenetic analysis, and the so-called International Prognostic Index, or IPI, are all extremely important. It's also important to say that in spite of all these very sophisticated tests, most investigators would accept that the treatment of early asymptomatic disease offers no advance to the patient. And this may, may change in the future with newer therapies, but at the moment, I think the advice is not to treat 
asymptomatic patients who have no evidence of bone marrow failure. Nowadays, most patients undergo cytogenalysis, cytogenetic analysis of their bone marrow looking for P53 mutations, deletions of 17P, which is the same thing. Uh, and this uh, carries obviously a poor prognosis. So if you're looking at the current diagnostic workup, this includes the IPI score, the age, the Rye or BNA classification, whichever one you're comfortable with, the beta, beta 2 microglobulin level, and the P53 genetic status. Now, how we have all of these newer informations and store, scoring criteria helped us in form of treatment. Well, about 15 years ago, Michael Keating and colleagues in the MD Anderson in Texas used a combination of fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and the monoclonal antibody rituximab, FCR. And this produced long-term remissions, which were MRD, or measurable residual disease negative, in patients with CLL. Traditionally, Six courses of this therapy was given, but four courses may be beneficial and less toxic. So in young fit patients with disease which requires therapy, then FCR can produce long-term remissions and may in fact be curative in some patients. I have personally seen patients treated up to 20 years ago with FCR who are now apparently in complete remission, sustained remission from their disease and hopefully are cured. Now, there are other forms of therapy, of course, monoclonal antibodies, which are usually given in combination with chemotherapy, as in other diseases, rarely uh, uh, of much value on their own. Kinase inhibitors, which have changed the landscape completely, BCL2 inhibitors, and then more laterally, and still undergoing investigation, cellular therapy with so-called CAR T-cells. The hope of most investigators is that patients can be managed without chemotherapy in the future, although, as I've said, young fit patients still deserve to be treated with FCR. Now, the kinase, kinase inhibitors, so-called Bruton kinase inhibitors, block signaling within lymphocytes, which is initiated by the B-cell receptor. Uh, and there are many different varieties of these still undergoing investigation. Ibrutinib is a drug which has been lauded as being extremely effective in patients with CLL, and it is. However, it needs to be given indefinitely, and cardiotoxicity and thrombocytopenia may be a problem. In fact, outside the clinical trial setting, they seem to be uh, such a problem that of almost half the patients receiving long-term abrutinib discontinue therapy. Another minor point to remember is that kinase inhibitors may be followed by a rise in lymphocyte count, just like after a corticosteroid therapy, and this should not be taken as evidence of progressive disease. Now, BCL2 is overexpressed in CLL, and anti-BCL2 drugs may be effective. 
and they are given orally, which of course, from the patient's perspective, is a significant advantage. Monoclonal antibodies against CD20, as I mentioned earlier, rituximab, are, are, are rarely effective on their own, but are synergistic with chemotherapy. For example, the drug bendamustine and rituximab is a good combination. Now, what's the position regarding cellular engineered therapy? Well, at the moment, so-called CAR-T cell therapy is used for either relapsed or refractory disease. And I'd have to say that the general results so far have not been very encouraging. The addition of kinase inhibitors to CAR therapy may help in the overall effectiveness of these drugs. However, CAR T cell therapy should not be undertaken outside the bounds of a clinical prospective trial. In that case, we will get information fairly soon as to whether this therapy is of any value or not, as it's extremely expensive and also rather difficult to give. Now, what is the role of allogeneic, allogeneic hematopoietic cell therapy, or HCT, uh, in patients with CLL? Well, it's got a fairly limited role. In young patients with P53 mutations, especially if they have re re received prior chemotherapy and the drug venetoclax, and have then had a relapse, they may be candidates for allo-HCT if they have a compatible donor, preferably a sibling donor, but uh, in this day and age, uh, with good matching, uh, allogeneic transplantation may be offered with unrelated donors. If possible, patients with CLL who are undergoing these more experimental forms of therapy should be entered into a clinical trial. It's also fair to say that the ground is shifting fairly quickly and that what is adequate treatment today may not be taken as the correct form of therapy in six or 12 months time. So you need to watch this space. Now, I'll give you an example of some of the difficulties in managing patients with CLL by giving you a case in which I was the primary physician some years ago. This was a 62-year-old man who was referred to the hematology clinic. His complaint was that of a painless swelling in his neck, which made it difficult to button his shirt collar. In those days, men still wore neckties. He also complained of fatigue for two or more weeks, and he thought that the swelling was getting larger. I should say that painless swelling is always a cause for concern and may be a sign of malignancy. Painful swelling, on the other hand, is often due to an infection. So painless swelling should alert you to the possibility of malignancy. This man was married with two children and he had no previous illnesses apart from a fractured clavicle when he was a teenager, which was certainly felt to be totally irrelevant. When he was examined, he was found to have enlarged lymph nodes in his cervical 
submandibular and supratrabicular areas. And as I said, they were non-tender and fixed. A peripheral blood count revealed a lymphocytosis. This lymphocyte count was 49 by 10 to the 9 per litre. And a blood film showed a predominance of small lymphocytes and occasional smudge cells. Now, although the lymphocytes in CLL are often called by investigators normal lymphocytes, of course, we know that they are not normal. And cells without their cytoplasmic membrane appear as what we call smudge cells are commonly found in patients with CLL. In this patient, a chest radiograph showed enlarged multiple mediastinal lymph nodes and abdominal CT examination showed a large liver and spleen. Further investigation showed that he had hypogammaglobulinemia. All immunoglobulins were decreased, but his serum IgG level was the most dramatically increased of all. We carried out a flow, cytom flow cytometry on his peripheral blood and showed the majority of the cells co-expressed CD5, as we said earlier on, as a T-cell marker, co-expressed with CD23 and low expression of CD20. At that stage, a cytogenetic analysis was not carried out. His beta-2 microglobulin and LDH levels were normal, and his immunoglobulin HV heavy chain status was unmutated. He was vaccinated against pneumococcus, haemophilus, and influenza. Following this, he was given four courses of fludarabine, cyclophosphamide, and rituximab. Blood counts returned to normal, and lymph nodes were no longer palpable. His chest radiograph appeared normal, and CT of his abdomen showed that the spleen and liver had returned to normal size. His peripheral blood was examined for evidence of measurable residual disease, MRD, and was not detected by flow cytometry. Of course, he was asymptomatic at this stage. What happened to him? Well, he remained well for about a year. And then he noticed a recurrence of the swelling in his neck and return of the symptom of profound fatigue. Examination again confirmed enlarged lymph nodes in his neck and examination of his blood revealed a marked increase in the lactic dehydrogenase, LDH, and beta-2 microglobulin levels. And this alerted us to the fact that this man now had progressive disease. Interestingly, his peripheral blood lymphocyte count remained normal. A clinical diagnosis of probable Richter syndrome was made. Now, Richter syndrome, as we'll say in a few minutes, is the development of a diffuse large B-cell lymphoma in a patient with pre-existing CLL. And on, a, on the examination of a lymph node excision biopsy, this is in fact what the histologist reported. He had no compatible sibling donor for a, an HCT. As expected, he 
developed profound neutropenia and became febrile. He was hospitalized, treated with high doses of intravenous antibiotics and immunoglobulins, but deteriorated and unfortunately died. Now, there are a few um, notions about Richter syndrome which are completely wrong. Everybody, I think, knows that it is development of a DLBCL in a patient with pre-existing CLL. What a lot of people may not know is that may, it may occur at any time, and the majority of patients who develop Richter syndrome develop it within two years of the diagnosis of CLL. So you don't have to have pre-existing CLL for many, many years before developing Richter syndrome. Are there any prognostic indicators that may indicate the likelihood of developing Richter syndrome? Well, IVBH 439 subset 8 has a strong, a strong association with the development of the syndrome. If this analysis, this analysis can be done with peripheral blood, by the way, but if it's not available to you, then careful clinical evaluation and an excision lymph node biopsy on a patient who seems to be relapsing are indicated. The treatment of Richter syndrome with combination chemotherapy, I'm afraid to say, has not proved very effective. Uh, break the, the class of drugs known as breakpoint inhibitors and allo HCT may have a role to play in the treatment of Richter syndrome. Again, if possible, these patients should be entered on a clinical trial. At the moment, I understand the prognosis in patients with this development remains poor. So in summary, CLL is a disease and we have no idea what the cause is. It has a huge variety or variation in clinical outcome. And remember, asymptomatic patients should not be treated. Diagnostic parameters are available in most hematology laboratories and flow cytometry and cytogenetics are probably nowadays mandatory. Whether cytogenetic analysis should be carried out at the time of diagnosis or not remains a point for discussion. Some young fit patients may be cured with combination chemotherapy and in older patients, the ground is shifting with newer forms of therapy. So again, clinical trials should be undertaking wherever possible. Thank you. That was Professor Sean McCann for Episode 8 of EHA Unplugged. For other topics, we highly recommend the rest of this podcast series. For now, thank you for listening. And hey, if you are passionate about hematology yourself, why not contact us and start your own podcast episode? You can reach us via education at ehaweb.org. Goodbye.